My name is Shredda and this is The Leitner Side of Things, Practitioner Perspectives in School Psychology, a place for school psychology practitioners to come together and share experiences and insights about their work. Today, I am speaking with Dr. Byron McClure. Welcome. Hi, thank you so much for having me. Oh, thank you so much for doing this. I know how busy you must be, especially lately with um, everything going on. Yeah, you know, we're all trying to do what we can with the time that we can. So uh, it's funny, we were talking a little earlier. I am trying to live and, you know, make sure I'm staying organized by my calendar. That's one tool that has really come in handy <laughs> the past few months for me. So I try to, to get things on my calendar and stay organized. It doesn't always work, um, <laughs> but this is one tool that I am finding uh, is, is really useful for me. So I tried a new yeah, one today so too. So random. I tried Calendly. Are you familiar with that? I've heard of it. I haven't used it though. Yeah, it's a um, it's a, a calendar scheduling tool. So I, I want to you know try to get familiar with that one. So little tools to to help us school psychologists out. You are published uh, and we're very well known as a school psychologist. You work as a practitioner, an entrepreneur, researcher, um, a leader. Anything else did I miss? Oh no! Are you talking about me? I do all those things. Yes. <laughs> No, no. <laughs> it's always <laughs> weird hearing, you know, people acknowledge the things that you do. I, my focus has always, you know, since I, I became a practitioner, is advocating for, for Black youth and for Black kids who look like me. Um, that's that's really my focus and my priority and, and what I try to do. So You've definitely made some big contributions to the field, and that doesn't go unrecognized. Um, and I know that's one of your goals to attract mm -hmm. more black youth to the field, which I want to get to in a couple minutes. Mm -hmm. But first, can you just talk about what attracted you to school psychology? Yeah, that's a great question. And it's funny because it was an accident and just being honest and transparent, there was nothing that attracted me to the field because I didn't even know the field existed. Um, when I, I graduated from undergrad, and with my degree in psychology. And I went to graduate school uh, for clinical psychology. Um, that was my path. I started uh, in my master's program um, down in Texas uh, and on the clinical psych track. And I remember it was one of my first, first classes and we had an assignment to where we had to look up the, the job prospects, the demographic we wanted to work with. And like I said, I always wanted to work with Black people who look like me. Mm -hmm. I focused on restoring and healing um, and focusing on, you know, economic empowerment. That's what I've always wanted to do. But in this class, as I started researching, I got a better understanding, which is, it's to me, it's, it's well known now, but at the time it wasn't. But Black people generally don't actively seek out counseling. Um, I learned much later that when when Black people do look for counseling or for therapeutic services, it tends to be involuntary. Um, and so 
I, I had to sit there and really wrestle with, I want to work with a certain demographic. Um, this is how long it will take me uh, to get this degree. And by the time I'm finished, will I actually be able to achieve my goal? And so I literally walked out of that class, despondent with my head down, like, what am I gonna do? And in that moment, this lady walks up to me, she's like, hey, are you okay? <laughs> and I'm like, who's this lady talking to, to like, what is going on? Um, and we just, she was just so nice and warm and understanding. And it was exactly what I needed in that moment. Um, and I told her the problem that, that I was facing and trying to make sense with. And she just looked at me and said, well, if you want to prevent, to heal, to restore, if you want to work with Black people who look like you, it makes sense if you get in early working with youth so that you can prevent problems uh, so that you can be an advocate at a young age. I was like, that sounds great. Like, what are you talking about? So after school program? said, no, I'm talking about school psychology. And that was my first introduction to school psychology. And that person who I was talking to, her name is Dr. Jennifer Shoemaker. And I didn't know at the time, but she was the chair of the school psychology department. And she literally introduced me to the field and changed the trajectory of my life. Um, because after that, I walked into her office, um, me and one of my, my good friends, Bob, true story, Bob was like the first white friend I ever had in life. Shout out to Bob. Um, but we switched, like we literally switched from clinical site to school site um, and the rest is history. But that was the moment where I was introduced to school psychology by happenstance. And years later, I'm a school psychologist, so. Wow. Yeah. So I mean, you mentioned it a couple minutes ago that your goal is really black youth into the field and I know in another interview you stated that your true professional goal in the school to prison pipeline by transforming the way school psychologists work in schools and mm -hmm. by engaging more black and brown youth in the field so how do we do that do you have any suggestions on how to improve black male recruitment and retention in a field that's predominantly white and female yeah, absolutely. And this is such an important conversation. And as as you've done your homework, I, I really appreciate that. That's really cool. Um, you make me seem like I'm somebody, you know, worth talking to. I just talk. Um, <laughs> but no, as you, you've kind of alluded to, um, it, and especially for me, I looking at, at my trajectory, how I just happened to be at the right place at the right time, talking to the right person. If that would have never happened, I would have never known about the field of school psychology. So to me, the very first thing that has to happen is basic exposure. Black people must be exposed to the field of school psychology. We have to know what's out there, what options are available to us. And this is why I appreciate uh, the work of Dr. Charles Barrett um, because he is the, the co-founder of the NASP Exposure Project, which the purpose, the original purpose of the NASP Exposure Project was simply to expose Black people to the field of school psychology. 
And that is important because some people, many people will never be introduced to it. And it's so interesting now that I, I've been in the field for a while, like I'll run into people um, to where people's parents will have been school psychologists and they'll have, you know, friends and family members who are school psychologists. Like, man, y'all are connected. Like I had no clue, but they've been exposed to the field so they know about it. They go into undergrad knowing what they want to do. So for me, I was years behind. So a very simple way is exposing early and exposing often, which is why the NASA Exposure Project um, dropped down from originally wanting to introduce undergrad students to introducing early uh, the field of school psychology to high school students in the hope that by exposing students that they'll have more of a likelihood to make a decision to enter into the field of school psychology. Um, after I finished uh, graduate school, again, this is, this is a, another component too. The entering into the field is one aspect, um, but then the retention is another thing. Me entering right. into the actual field out of graduate school I was the first black male in my district. I, I got to navigate the waters of graduate school. Uh, as, a, as a way to say, I landed on my feet, um, but then entering into you know, the workforce, that's a, a completely different beast um, in and of itself. I was the first black male in my district mm -hmm. and I didn't have any, any mentors or anybody you know in my in my near vicinity as a black male who I could go to and talk about their experiences and trade stories um and anyone to you know be there to to hold my hand um I had to figure it all out on, on my own and as a result for for many black males who might be lucky enough to actually make it into the field they don't stay that long um, because it, it can burn them out. It can be stressful. Um, the weight of the world can be on them. Um, for example, me entering into um, my first few years, I was split between an elementary and a middle school. And being a, one of the few Black males, did they respect me as a school psychologist? Maybe. But they see Black male, disciplinary figure. So we need you to handle any and everything behavior related. <laughs> and so you coming in, as the enforcer. And if you see, in my mind, I'm like 6'4", 275, like ready to take on anybody. But in reality, I'm like 5'9", <laughs> like 170. I'm a little guy, like who am I intimidating, right? Um, but the expectation is that I, I'm an enforcer, I'm a disciplinarian. And so coming into a school as a black male, the expectation is that you work with the most challenging students. Um, and that you, you change it. Luckily for me, I wanted to work with Black students. I wanted to work with students with, with disabilities um, and, and students who, who just needed uh, an additional support, an additional male figure there. Um, and in that work, I, I discovered so many different things. One of those things being the incongruence between our Black male students um, and teachers. And I don't even want to generalize to saying white female teachers because it can be teachers in general. Um, and seeing that there was difficulties 
being able to work with our black male students um, because they don't understand the brilliance of black boys. And so what was happening, our black boys were being disciplined at disproportionate rates. Mm -hmm. And so me going into and, and work with black kids, I was not doing anything spectacular. I was doing what I knew would work because I'm a black boy. And no, you're not gonna remove this black kid. I'm gonna talk to him, come sit down, we're gonna do it this way. And that kid will do anything for you. Was able to build relationships, to connect with them. And they will run through a wall for you because we're able to make that connection. Um, and, and with that work, I was able to keep the kids in school. And so no, you're not getting rid of them. We're gonna work with them. We're gonna teach them the skills that they need in order to be successful. And those skills that I primarily focused on uh, were those social emotional uh, learning skills, those SEL skills, which is a, a big part of what I do. You know, but my focus was teaching those skills, those five core SEL skills to our Black youth so that they could then take those skills, navigate the world around them so that they could be successful in school. And ultimately what would happen, uh, we would look at ways so that, especially from the teacher and admin side, where our black boys aren't being removed or excluded from school. They're staying inside of the class and able to access the curriculum. I'll pause there because I know I've been talking a lot. <laughs> no, you're fine. It's So you were sort of able to turn that perception of who you are and what you do as you're a school psychologist, but you were viewed as a disciplinarian. You're sort of able to turn that perception on its head and turn it into something that worked for you in terms of what you wanted to do and also worked for the students in terms of teaching those SEL skills. But do you feel mm -hmm. like districts need to really work with whoever is making the hiring decisions and their principals within buildings to really help them understand better what school psychologists do? Oh, yes, a, a thousand percent. And that's, again, one of the issues that we see in the field of school psychology. People don't know what we do. And within ourselves, we'll fight all day in the paint over uh, what the meaning of a learning disability or, mm -hmm. you know, some things that, that we care about as school psychologists. But inside that actual building, people might see you as you're a counselor. Nope, not a counselor. They'll say, okay, well, you just test people or you just stay in, in your office and don't do anything. Like that's your role. Your role is to test kids and see if they qualify for special education. They're put in these, these narrow boxes. And I've always prided myself on showing people what school psychologists can do by utilizing this wide array of skills uh, to improve, as people say, the whole child. Um, and I, I really thrive on being creative, on utilizing our skills. Because look, even NAS just came out with, they just released the, the updated practice model. Right. But you got to think we are experts in not only testing, but in consultation and research and understanding the data and all these different key elements. So no school district I'm not just going to be this test machine. I'm going to do everything that I know how to do, that I was taught how to do, that comes intrinsic to me because my kids deserve it. 
And if we're only relegated to this one small area, then we are doing our students, the families, and the communities that we serve a disservice. And so, yes, that also goes back to hiring because we need the right people at the table to say, we're not going with this traditional school psychologist. We're going to go out and get those young people who are given 100%. Age doesn't matter. You could be whatever. Those people who are coming in and saying that we're not going to continue the status quo. We are going to utilize our skills as school psychologists so that we can educate the whole child, make sure that students have the skills that they need to be successful. Yeah. And another thing, listen, I know I'm just going to go off and just Please. say it. Everybody's being anti-racist now. Everybody is, you know, equity and diversity and all of that. It starts with the hiring practices. It starts with examining your practices in general. What are you, you show me your policy, you show me your practices, and I'll tell you if you're anti-racist or not. Mm -hmm. And if you're not hiring black and brown faces to go into your building, then we have a problem. If you're not bringing the right people to the table to solve the problems that you haven't been able to solve for, then we have a problem. Those policies, hiring policies, discipline policies, culture and climate policies, uh, academic policies must be adequately examined. We must be doing something about it. It can't just be lip service. It can't be we're anti-racist because we read a book and we think it sounds good to put in our bios and to put black squares up. No, we have to be about Everything that we're saying, we stand for. Why? Because our students deserve it. They don't deserve anything less. In your opinion, whose responsibility is it to take on that work and help districts realize that there is a bias in their hiring process? Um, because until districts can kind of see that and understand that and work on that, you know, we're still going to have these issues with not having enough black and brown individuals in our field. And when we do, um, there being more biased perceptions on what their roles really are in a building. Right. And there are a number of thoughts around this topic, in particular, whose responsibility it is. I am under the belief that it is up to the district, it's up to the leadership of the district to be introspective, um, to make sure that they are doing everything in their power to be bringing the right people to the table. And that begins with being able to ask the right questions and taking a, a honest inventory of, of their characteristics, of their traits, of where they are, um, understanding their data, what their numbers show, um, being able to identify those gaps and then being able to say, hey, we're not where we want to be. And we are going to do everything in our power to move this district in the right direction. That starts with leadership, um, whether it be the superintendent, the chancellor, uh, the board members, 
Um, that's a decision that must be made introspectively um, within the district. Then as you begin to you know, trickle down the, the leadership ladder, um, for us, for school psychologists, um, director of support services or you know, the, the lead psychologist, supervising psychologists, um, they have to be able to, to have those conversations um, to say, hey, have we hired any Black people? And not just hiring Black people to meet some quota or some number, um, but genuinely doing it so that they can have people who are competent, who have the skills, not only to work with students, to work with Black and Brown students, but who can then challenge uh, their peers, who can be at the table when decisions are being made. Um, that's one thing that I've always, no matter what district I've been in, um, you're always going to hear uh, what Byron McClure has to say. Um, because if I see something that's wrong, I'm going to speak up. I'm going to say something. Um, and it's up to districts uh, to be able to listen uh, to people like myself and others who 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 care, who care deeply um, and bringing people like myself to the table so that they can make decisions so that they can hear, OK, this isn't working and these are reasons why. Here are some possible solutions um, and things that 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 we might want to try. Um, until that happens, not much is going to change. Um, and being transparent, there's a lot of resistance around that. Um, there's you have resistance on one side. You have um, people on the other side who might just be doing this for show um, because it's trendy and it sounds good. Um, but we need people who are genuine, authentic and ready to do the work. In your experience, to what extent does a staff's or building's cultural responsiveness with each other or their own anti-racist practice or lack thereof impact their ability to deliver appropriate SEL for their students? And I don't mean just sort of reading the curriculum of that SEL program, but in terms of reflecting those practices and cultures and their own behavior. Yeah, you can never do it authentically if you haven't addressed your own. One of the very first steps to having strong SEL skills is self-awareness. And I always start, start with self-awareness because there's a, a key component where not only is it having an understanding of your own thoughts, feelings, beliefs, um, and behaviors, you can understand your own biases, your own shortcomings, um, your own uh, privilege as well, black or white. And until you can really a solid understanding of who you are, your beliefs, your identities, your cultural norms, it will be really difficult and challenging to be able to meet the needs of your students, to help your students to develop their own self-awareness, right? Because SEL, like that's a process that has to be acquired over time. And if we don't have teachers who have the skills, then we're not gonna have students who can develop those skills. So it's imperative that staff 
genuinely and authentically work to improve their selves so that they can be fully present to meet the needs of students. I want to mention one of your interviews. Um, this was with MindWorks Collaborative, where you talked about how you're able to continue oh, yeah. advancing restorative justice work in your district, despite having a new principal every year since starting in the district. Um, and yeah. I think that's something pretty common. A lot of school psychologists deal with that. What type of impact yeah. did that frequent administrative change have on your work? Oh, it was it was difficult. Um, yeah, it's it's a challenge, right? Because it's different beliefs, philosophies, uh, leadership styles. Um, it, it can be a challenge, and oftentimes when you have a high turnover of leadership, that in and of itself can cause a trauma to a school because it it's removing stability. And what happens, you have a system, a structure that is unstable. So whether it's SEL, whether it's restorative practices, whether it's just showing up, it can be challenging because it's built on an unstable foundation. And so in the terms of having a, a leadership that is constantly turning over, it presents challenges. Luckily, our most recent leadership has been 100% on board with restorative practices. Um, interestingly enough, uh, one of my, my go-to philosophies is uh, looking at the strengths of students and staff. Um, and we all take the strength finders assessment um, and the staff who I work with, uh, they call the dream team. We could talk about that at another time. Um, but the dream team, all dream team staff members, it's about 22 total, all take this strength finder assessment to identify their top strengths. Um, and there's, I believe, 34 different strengths. Um, and I looked at the, using my psychology skills, I analyzed the data and the top five strengths for all of the, the dream team staff, one of the top five was restorative which is a strength. And that means being able to heal, being able to repair, being able to come together collaboratively. And we all had that as one of our top five strengths because of the emphasis and the, the systems that we put on becoming a restorative school. So it was really interesting to even comb through our data and see that when you have a leadership that's on board who buys into the system um, of restorative practices, that we can see that showing up uh, in this collective assessment that our staff took, which was pretty cool to see. Um, yeah, interesting. So what have been the biggest challenges in sort of changing adult mindsets to kind of get to that place where you're at? Yeah, one of the biggest challenges um, is getting out of the habit of, you know, operating the way how you've already operated. It, it becomes your default, right? And an example of that, um, as we shifted to being a restorative school, um, people might want to operate off of retribution mm -hmm. or payback. You do something to me, I want payback. I want something to happen. It needs to be a consequence. 
being restorative means shifting away, right? It doesn't mean you don't hold students accountable or staff members for that matter, but it means coming to the table collectively, working to come up with a shared agreement, and then holding each other accountable in order to repair harm. That's a process that's focused on healing and restoring. Some people don't want that. Some people want, you did this to me. I need you to get out of my class. I need you to be suspended. I need to go home. That's retribution. I need payback. And that is tough. So when you say, nope, we're no longer handling things that way. We are not going to do what we always did because we've always got poor results. We're going to do something different. And when staff are met with that, there's going to be resistance. There's going to be pushback. Um, and that that is a major challenge. Um, and that's something that has to be addressed and, and confronted um, in order to say, hey, I understand it's difficult and it's challenging to genuinely change your mindset, but this is the way how we are approaching this work. And slowly but surely, we're, what, year five of restorative practices now? Um, and we are trying to get to, to the maintenance stage of this. Um, but it takes time. Um, we, we just have to be persistent in that work. And I'm curious if you can think of any challenges of systemic change or just practitioner life that you've encountered that no one talks about. Whew. <laughs> that's it. Yeah. Because um, you are, you're also, you've been doing something that's a lot of school psychologists do work on systemic change, um, but you've been doing something pretty innovative and something that is really a good model for other districts and other school psychologists. Um, so I was wondering if you can think of any things that came out of that or any hurdles as you were um, going through that process that really no one talks about and we don't really think of. Yeah, and to, to clarify a little bit, um, I'm as in my current role, I'm no longer a school psychologist. Right. Uh, I'm always a school <laughs> psychologist. I'm a school psychologist in my heart, um, but my, my title is you know, the Assistant Director of Redesign. Um, but I, I take those skills that I've learned as a school psychologist with me. Um, and in this work, um, I've been, been lucky and fortunate to work to redesign um, a high school. And so, yes, our work has been at the, at the systems level. I'm looking at how to system-wide, uh, within our school system, within our school, um, to change structures, um, to change systems and policies. And whew, I mean, where to start? Do you want to start with culture? Do you want to start with academics? Do you want to start with adults? I mean, we can just pick one from, you know, the IP process. Um, one uh, simple system um, looking at inclusion. I mean, there's so many barriers that you can just take a pick from. My focus um, has been with this concept of the dream team. I kind of mentioned it mm -hmm. earlier. Um, in a nutshell, it's connecting every incoming ninth grader with a team of caring adults. And in essence, it's the next evolution of our SEL and restorative practice work. Um, and at the core, 
what we are getting at is a system change around culture um, and how how we connect with students, um, which has been hard. It's been very difficult and trying to implement this structure within a new structure that we're rolling out in MTSS or MTSS. And another part of my responsibilities, along with integrating this concept of the dream team, is rolling out a multi-tier system of support. Um, and something as simple as, what is the data management system we're going to use? That can be hard. <laughs> that can be a struggle in and of itself, trying to land on the most effective way uh, to measure, to track, to collect student student progress um that that can be difficult um to to now you know we are still landing on what does mcss mean for our school especially in a school such as anacostia um, which is the name of my high school to where we have what's called an inverted triangle you know traditionally you'll see most students within that tier one level of support mm -hmm. well based on the needs of our high school most of our students um, in our school uh, need tier three levels of support, intensive levels of support. So systemically, how are we providing majority of our students with intensive supports and services? That's a struggle. That's tough. How do we, in a systemized way, address the mental health needs of 80, 85% of our students. What supports do we have in place? Um, and those are some of the things that we really have to sit down, plan, and then execute. And again, one of the things we mentioned earlier, how do you do that with a high turnover of leadership? How do you do that with a high turnover of staff when you have things such as budget cuts or you lose staff because of impact? These are all things that present systemic challenges to actual change. Um, and it's no easy solution or answer, um, but it's, it's problems that school psychologists, we must use our unique skill sets uh, to be at the table, um, to, to work with administration to find solutions. And I mean, speaking of, systems, there is the saying that every system is perfectly designed to achieve the outcome it gets. And this is- I like that. Yeah, I mean, this has become pretty evident, especially in today's world. In the position you're in now, um, I'm wondering to what extent can or should, or would you expect a building level school psychologist to hold their systems accountable? How can they extend their voices and extend them far enough and wide enough to make that impact? Mm -hmm. And I've learned to answer this question in a thoughtful manner because school psychologists are diverse. We all have differing or varying levels of skill sets, of expertise and knowledge and knowledge. But what we all can do is speak up. And that's a very, it's difficult, 
it can be a challenge. But my challenge to all school psychologists, when you're at the tables in whatever space that you occupy, is to speak up because we know our stuff. We are experts in so many different areas. Like I mentioned, we're experts in data collection. We're experts in child development. We're experts in consultation and theory. So chances are when we're at these tables, whether it be for special education, for interventions, for just, you know, brainstorming, nine times out of 10, psychologists, school psychologists will be able to contribute. And when you have that opportunity, speak up. Let it be known the services uh, what you're able to offer, what you can provide. One thing that I did in every school that I always stepped foot in is I didn't wait for people to, to figure out what it is that I could do. I let them know, this is what I can do as a school psychologist. And I literally would create uh, a one-page document uh, that had introducing Byron McClure, your school psychologist. This is where I always joke and say, I'm like your favorite school psychologist, like your favorite school psych. Um, that's literally where <laughs> it came from. I put your favorite, I was being cheesy, like your favorite school psychologist. And it's like, hey guys, I'm here. Oh, this is what I can do. And I literally let people know I can consult. Give me one of the things on that, that document. I said, give me all your kids. Mm-hmm. I, run groups, I'll play basketball, I'll do whatever it is that you need me to do. Um, that's probably why they thought I was a disciplinarian, but I let them know exactly what it is that I could do. And then I also sent that same document out in an email. That way I let all staff know I introduced myself. I let them know I do more than testing. And that's powerful because sometimes people just don't know, right? Like we can't assume that um, they're operating from a place of malice or ill intent. It could genuinely be because they just don't know what school psychologists do. So we can simply let people know by speaking up um, and using whatever you know uh, skills and knowledge sets that that you feel comfortable with. If you're good at testing, then hey, go be the best uh, evaluator possible. If you're good at talking, get up and lead a professional development for your staff based on whatever your areas of interest are. If you're great with restorative practices, go facilitate some circles for staff or students. Whatever your skill set is as a school psychologist, don't be afraid to use them. Hmm. I like that. I've been reflecting on this um, a lot the past week and I've been thinking a lot about how being a school psychologist really requires courage. You can have all the knowledge in the world, but if you're not willing to use your voice and speak up, like you said, then it's all sort of not going to be used. Um, so it does require some courage, which they don't teach you to have in graduate school. Mm-hmm. And it's hard. And even even if you're you're not outspoken, if you're you know more reserved, one thing if you're at the table. Um, is just to ask the question of how can I help? What can I do? Have you considered this? It can be a simple question. Um, and that's, that's how I always you know, suggest 
you can just, you know, ask a question. I feel like this is all great things to talk about with graduate students in their training programs too. But that said, um, I always like to ask if you have any advice that you would give to graduate programs to help better prepare their students for practice in today's world. Yeah, that's a that's another really good question. Um, the advice that that I would give to you know graduate educators to prepare their students about the real world is it's important to be student centered, and what that means is we can't possibly know all the answers. We can't dictate what is best for our students. Instead, we must have an approach and philosophy of working with our students, side by side in a partnership, collaboratively helping our students go to wherever it is that they want to go to. Now, by being student-centered, we are always putting the needs of our children first. By being student-centered, we are able to be empathetic to the needs of others, and we can design with our students together. So my advice is to always have a mindset, a philosophy of being student-centered in order to meet the needs of your children in an authentic way. Because if you don't, your students will read right through it. Uh, they, they can spot someone who is inauthentic or not genuine a mile away. So you have to be authentic. You have to be genuine. It must be student-centered. That's great advice. And on that note, I want to say thank you. Thank you for your flexibility today and your patience through our technology issues. And thank you so much for taking the time to answer these questions. Uh, not a problem at all. Thank you for having me. And I'm glad that we were able to, to talk. Thank you so much for listening to The Leitner Side of Things. If you have any feedback or topic ideas, let me know on Twitter. My Twitter handle is at S-G-E-R-A-9-9. See you at the next episode.